What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Jessica Luther, freelance journalist and author in Austin, Texas. And on today's show, I'm joined by Shreen Ahmed, a writer, public speaker, and sports activist in Toronto, and Amira Rose Davis, an assistant professor of history and African-American studies at Penn State University. First things first, our thoughts and thanks go out to all the people who are on the front lines of the continuing COVID-19 pandemic and to those protesting against racial injustice and working towards equality. We are keeping you all in our thoughts. Also, happy Father's Day to everyone who celebrated this past weekend. As always, thank you to our patrons who supported this podcast through our ongoing Patreon campaign, Make Burn It All Down Possible. We are forever and always grateful. If you'd like to become a patron at DZ, go to patreon.com slash burnitalldown. For as little as $2 per month, you can access exclusives like extra Patreon-only segments or our monthly behind-the-scenes vlog. On today's show, we're going to talk about athlete activism, if sports returning is good or bad for activism, and what happens with athlete activism once sports are actually back. Then Shireen interviews Renee Montgomery, Atlanta Dream Point Guard, who just days ago announced that she is stepping away from the court for one year in order to focus her attention on the Black Lives Matter movement while building up Atlanta and her community. And of course, we'll cap off today's show by burning things that deserve to be burned, doing shout-outs to women who deserve shout-outs, and telling you what is good in our world. But first, before we get into all of that, this past Friday in the United States was the 155th anniversary of Juneteenth. The original Juneteenth was here in Texas, and so it has always been a big deal here. But a lot of people this year, I, I gather, learned about it for the first time. And in case you were not one of them, Amira... Dr. Davis, resident historian here today. Can you tell us a little bit about Juneteenth? Yeah, no, this has been very weird to watch it. <laughs> to be like, <laughs> It's just weird. Yeah, I mean, so it's, it's so interesting. So the short kind of dirty version history of Juneteenth is marked by commemorating June 19th, 1865, uh, when Union General rolled into Galveston, Texas, and read a proclamation about the war being over about freedom about emancipation and you know of course the the story there is that the news about freedom took so long to spread over to Texas that it was two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation it was a few months after the end of the war and and that they didn't even know that freedom had come, right? And so he rides into Galveston, he reads this order. And I think it's important to note that it wasn't like, a, you're free, now go go live in freedom. It was like, by the way, you're free, you should go back to your plantations and ask your slave masters for jobs, right? But it still uh, set off a moment of jubilee. And make no mistakes, when we're talking about the end of the Civil War, we're talking about the fact that enslaved people forced the issue of freedom from 
the inception of this country and on, whether it was picking up arms and joining the union to fight, whether it was people like Frederick Douglass pushing abolitionism, enslaved people themselves compelled the country to act upon the issue of slavery. So when people say they freed themselves, this is what they mean. And so that day, particularly in Texas, became a day of celebration. Um, the next year in 1866, on June 19th, it was Jubilee Day. And it's important to note that a Throughout the South, there were different Emancipation Days. Mississippi celebrates Emancipation Day on May 8th. There's people who celebrated Emancipation Day in July, in August, in January. And so there was a lot. Everybody had their specific celebrations of when they felt liberated. And for Texas, that has always been Jubilee Day, which then turned into Juneteenth. And we were, uh, you know, as somebody, I was born in Beaumont, Texas, an hour and a half from Galveston. And in Texas, it's it was very common for there to be parades. There was always a, a kind of celebration around it. Now, the kind of expansion of the holiday we don't really see until World War II and what we see also with the Great Migration. And if you want to read more about that, I highly recommend The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson. And what happens with the Great Migration and you get huge demographic shifts is you have Black folks from the South going to the urban North, going to the West. And as that's happening, they're bringing various traditions and celebrations with them, including that of Juneteenth. And so for when we're talking about the period after World War II, what we're talking about is slowly Black people with Southern roots across the country bringing these celebrations there. And so Juneteenth, again, kind of resurfaces and takes off. A lot of times family reunions would also be scheduled around these Emancipation Day celebrations, these Jubilee Days, Juneteenth celebrations. Those would be the days you went back down South for family reunions. And in 1980, finally, the state of Texas recognized that as a holiday. That is nothing compared to this moment in this week where despite people asking for like things like, I don't know, defund the police, it clearly became like Juneteenth, what I've been calling Juneteenth TM, where I feel like it was very easy for corporations to like seize upon it and be like, great, we're going to give this day a holiday or we're going to talk about this. And I think it's sometimes quite easier to like build monuments and holidays than it is to sustain movements. So I think that's a little bit of what we're seeing. And so for me, I'm not going to lie, it was kind of like weird struggle to see everybody like suddenly lean into Juneteenth. Um, but I highly recommend this great piece by Annette Gordon-Reed, a historian about growing up in Texas with these celebrations. And at the end of the day, Juneteenth is a celebration. It's, it's wild that we don't have a celebration about emancipation in this country. And everybody, you know, this... July 4th in independence has always rung hollow. And so Juneteenth really is takes on this kind of second, I wouldn't even say secondary independence day, but it really is a, a day for gathering and for being together and for family. And that's what I returned to this past week. My great, great, great grandmother was born enslaved in Natchez, Mississippi. She's buried in an Indian cemetery in Houston. My great, great, great grandfather picked up arms himself and enlisted in the Union Army in, 19, in 1863 to compel his own freedom. Um, my great, great grandfather was born in uh, 1868, three years after the war ended, and he lived till 1975. And uh, just imagining what he's seen in his lifetime. And so I said on IG, we're now seven generations deep on the soil and Juneteenth has been always a celebration for us. And so 
I enjoyed reflecting with my family and barbecuing and just being joyful because joy is an act of resistance. And so I highly recommend checking out my good friend, Dr. Derek White and Dr. Lou Moore's podcast, The Black Athlete, where they have Dr. Vanessa Holden on to talk more about the history of Juneteenth and in the context of athletic teams and organizations kind of leaning in and going all in on Juneteenth in a corporate way as well. Um, So there you go. That was wonderful. Thank you. I also think one of the great things about Juneteenth, one, that so many people learned about it just because they had it off. (laughs) So they had to like, what's happening here? And also, it really does. They're not great, let's say, about teaching that Texas had slavery at Mm -hmm. all. And that this holiday in particular really brought that up and out into the light in a way that was sort of, it was remarkable. That's really great. So. And the one last thing I'll say is I saw a few things like a, people saying, what action are you going to take on Juneteenth or using Juneteenth to recommit to action, the kind of day of service that Martin Luther King Day has become. I just want to remind everybody, like, do not do that. Like, Juneteenth is celebrating not doing free labor anymore. Like, it's not a day of service. It's not a day of action. It's a day of joy. It's a day of relaxation. It's a day of celebration, right? Like, do not work. Do not do whatever, just especially if you're black, like do not do shit on Juneteenth, like celebrating your existence and, and, and your, your, your ancestors and your family is what it's about. So don't in this kind of corporatization, commercialization of it, pick up your Juneteenth pie from Target, which they literally are selling and, and think you're compelled to do any service. Like that's, that's not the essence of the holiday. So the NBA is trying to return to play down in Orlando sometime soon. This past week, Commissioner Adam Silver was on ESPN talking about the return of sports when he said this, quote, We think for the country, it will be a respite from enormous difficulties people are dealing with in their lives right now. And I also think in terms of social justice issues, it will be an opportunity for NBA players and the greater community to draw attention to these issues because the world's attention will be on the NBA in Orlando, Florida, if we are able to pull this off. And when I saw this clip, I immediately sent it to my co-host and said, can we please talk about this this week? Because we're in this particular time, unlike any of us have experienced before, with the overlap of this pandemic that has caused radical changes in how we do basically anything that concerns more than three people, and the protesting against racial injustice that is taking place in all 50 states and multiple countries around the world. So in the same breath, Silver said the NBA returning will be a respite, a distraction, a balm for what is happening in the world, but also a way to draw attention to what is happening in the world. So which is it? And can it be both? When sports return, will they drown out the activism and organizing around racial injustice and for that matter, the seriousness surrounding the pandemic? Or will sports serve as a vehicle through which athletes and coaches can talk about these things to a large audience? Additionally, we've talked on this show about athletes speaking up and out about racial injustice more broadly, but also specifically within sport. And this week, there was more of that, with some college football players challenging their coaches' shitty racist politics, such as at Oklahoma State, and others questioning if they can trust their coaches when it comes to their health and COVID, such as at UCLA. That all works now, but I wonder what this will mean once sports actually starts back up. Will the normal power dynamics that exist shift back into place and the silence of players follow? Will athletes who've been speaking up about racial injustice, especially white players, stop and blame their silence on their focus on the game? I have all these questions around this and the perfect person is here. So Amira, what do you think about this? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I love how you set it up, right? Like, you can't have it both ways. And I think it's very interesting discussion to have. Um, I think that 
there is a lot of evidence to suggest that in this global pandemic, we are now well aware of how much sport really takes up space in society. Time, obviously money, but just time in terms of what we talk about and what we analyze. And I think that we've talked about it here. I've talked about it in conversation with Dr. Harry Edwards and Kevin Blackstone, et cetera, that in this moment, part of the reason we've had space to talk about these protests or talk about other things is because sports is not taking up that that space that it usually does. And so I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the absence of sport is reifying platforms to speak out against. And and I understand the, you know, feeling like, oh, well, when I'm playing again, my platform only grows because more eyes are on that. But the other thing is this, the system is like kind of right now I feel like it's kind of ground to like a halt. And I, I'm like literally picturing um, those like interlocking gears, gears starting yeah. up again. <laughs> and the thing about when those gears start up again and the system starts moving is that, yes, you have a platform, but now you have media coverage in a prescribed way, right? You have the 20 minutes before a game or after a game, right? You have all of this analysis about what happened on on the court. You have the regular system moving that is giving you the platform you've always had, but, you know, maybe under this umbrella, athletes who have demonstrated that they now feel more compelled to speak out, perhaps because they feel less precarious or more energized or whatever it is, maybe that will make it different. But other than that, to me, that that those gears starting is also power reasserting itself. I think to me, that instance is really emblematic of this moment is that you still are going to have racist coaches. You still are going to have outside power dynamic where they are controlling playing time, where they're controlling scholarships, where they're controlling jobs at the professional level. Um, we haven't changed the inherently racist structure of a lot of these teams. And so the idea that you know, returning to play is only going to expand platforms, I think is really naive. And I think that this withholding of their labor because everything's ground to a halt has really allowed um, various things to be exposed and for platforms to arise in this moment. And the more and more athletes like Kyrie and, and you know, people who call into question what returning to play looks like, the more and more they're seizing their labor force. And we're seeing this um, in terms of unionization. We're seeing this in like a return to the drawing board about play, uh, about CBAs. And I think that that has only come out of the absence of actually playing. And so that's kind of where I am about it. But I think it's certainly a very interesting debate to have. Yeah. I mean, I have so many things to say in response to that. I do want to mention as far as like the gears starting up again and what it will look like. Shireen recently did a hot take with Meg Linehan and Stephanie Ying about the NWSL's Challenge Cup that's coming up. And one thing that I remember Meg talking about is that she's not really sure like what access she'll have to players. Like we don't even know what media and therefore the platform itself will actually look like on the other side of this. Of course, if you're like LeBron James, you know, it's a different thing. But I do sort of wonder for players who are out there that maybe maybe pre and post game isn't a big thing for them normally. And this is actually a bigger platform right now because, as you said, there's an absence. So I was thinking about that. I would like to mention, you know, you're talking about Kyrie. Uh, there are a couple people who gave really good quotes about this. Lou Williams, 
He's a Clippers guard. He said, quote, in the six week, he's talking about like in the future, right? When the NBA gets going, he says, in six weeks, the world may need some healing. They may need us to be on the floor. But if more black kids and more black adults or any adults that's dealing with police brutality are getting killed and we're still outraged, I don't know if it's in our best interest to suit up because it looks like we don't care. You know what I mean? It's just a fine balance we're trying to create. I thought that was really interesting as far as what it looks like when the players suit up as far as racial injustice. I also think, what does that mean for COVID? Like, is this showing like it's not a big deal anymore when it's clearly still a big deal and again, affects disproportionately which communities? And then I wanted to mention Steven Jackson, a former NBA player. I think he played for 14 years. Um, He's been in the news a lot because he's a close friend of George Floyd's. And this is what Steven Jackson had to say, quote, I love the NBA, man. That's my family. But now ain't the time to be playing basketball, y'all. Now ain't the time. Playing basketball is going to do one thing, take all the attention off the task at hand right now and what we're fighting for. Everybody's going to be worried about the playoffs. They're going to have all that blasting all over the TV. And nobody's going to be talking about getting justice for all these senseless murders by the police. And nobody's going to be focused on the tax at hand, bro. So, I mean, players are really talking about this. And they're worried about what this will mean. Amira? Yeah, I love that point, Jessica, because you can already see the narratives of sports as this, like, grand healing communal space where everybody's coming together like all the narratives of unity sports is always so ready for that and i think that it that's i think you nailed it because i couldn't even articulate it but that is my fear that people sitting up and going back on will send signals like we're on this together we've made it here's a wonderful fun distraction covid is over racism is over look at our multiracial team coming together to win like it's ready made to advance advance these narratives of unity that allied the struggles that are still happening on multiple fronts. Yeah, I agree. And I wanted to go back to a point that Amira made before about power dynamics, especially in college sports, especially college football. We talked about this on the show, but back in 2015, the Missouri football team boycotted or they threatened to boycott a game, forced the resignation of the president of Missouri after there were multiple racist incidents on campus and other uh, students were had already organized. There was already a student who was doing a hunger strike at the time, but it was really the football team coming together uh, and saying, we're not going to play against BYU next weekend that, that forced the hand of the university. They have that kind of power. And so one thing that's been interesting is watching all these players speak up in this one moment. I love it. I, I want college athletes to feel empowered and to do that because they do have power. But I really... The real cynical part of me thinks unless they're going to boycott the actual playing, if they're not going to do it in season, then I'm not sure it really matters uh, in the end. Like, And I, I think Chuba was a really good, terrible example of this. Amira, did you have anything else on that? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the lessons from Mizzou, um, which... I think you're absolutely right. Like it's happening in season. It's happening days before they're supposed to play. A million dollars is on the line, right? And compelled all this action that Black students had been asking for for a year until they linked up with athletics. It got done in 48 hours. Um, but the other thing that happened with that is that the coach stood by them. The coach affirmed their position. And what they quietly wrote in to contracts in the wake of that was that coaches could not stand with players in these moments anymore, right? And I think that that's really instructive. So if you want to do more reading or if you want to um interested, there is a history of athletic protests, particularly in uh, college football at the end of the 60s, 
And uh, I just did an interview for the Chronicle of the Higher Ed where I, I kind of go deeper into this. But one of the things I want to highlight is that one of the things that happens as you start getting integration, and you get into these leagues. I mean, basically in the 60s, there was maybe one or two black athletes in all of these big kind of white school powerhouse football teams. By the by the 70s, that number was like 20 to 30. And by the 80s, of course, 40% of players in the SEC, football players in the SEC were black. So you have a huge demographic shift. And right at the late 80s and early 70s, a lot of these athletes started to protest, especially in 1969. And you saw a boycott, you saw claims, you saw, you know, pamphlets, very similar to what you're seeing now. And a lot of it, some of the points were even similar, higher black coaching staff, right? Some of them overlap with the concerns of black students who were non-athletes, hire more black professors, um, put special scholarship aid for us, et cetera etc. But one of the things that I want to draw attention to is that in the wake of these college protests by Black college athletes, quietly in January of 1973, the NCAA passed legislation that replaced four-year athletic scholarship making it a one-year renewable grant, right? So when we talk about the precarity of scholarships even not being fully guaranteed, we can look at this happening in 1973 on the heels of of multiple efforts of protest by college athletes as one of the ways to see when I talk about power reasserting itself, that's what it looks like, right? It looks like systematically changing it so that when you're giving scholarship to somebody, it's on a one-year renewable contract that shifts the power back to the coaching staff, back to the school. So now it's much harder to mobilize if you can be easily dismissed. It's much harder to mobilize if your, if your scholarship's not going to be renewed. It's much harder to mobilize in the NCA currently has transfer rules if you're going to have to sit out if you transfer. If part of getting a waiver to not sit out is saying you're leaving the school because of these issues, you need to get a letter from the school affirming your account, which means schools would be expected to provide letters saying, yeah, we did treat them unfairly. That's not going to happen. This is what the structure looks like and which is why it's so hard to sustain these protests at the college level. And then the other thing that happens is people graduate. And so I think they leave. And so I think that that's kind of what I'm I'm seeing in this moment when I'm thinking about that history of college protest. I'm looking and I'm saying, what's, what feels new about this? What feels new is that it feels like it's popping up all, all the way around. And I'm hoping that it's sustained. And I think that what history compels us to do is watch the details, is watch for those moments where things are written in or legislation is slightly changed in order to tip balance of power again. And so I think that's one of the places we need to keep our eye on. That's all so interesting. And so then we like, let's shift back to the professional level, where, you know, players have a lot of power in different ways than collegiate athletes. But still, even when they're using this platform, they, they are playing, they have the platform, we see that that can even still be, I don't know, corrupted or fucked up or messed up, whatever the right wording is here. Uh, Shireen, you have a good example of this. I do. I'm very mad about this. I found out last night. I had a great day yesterday. And of course, I shouldn't check Twitter half an hour before bedtime because inevitably Serie A, Italian professional soccer, is going to make me very angry in its anti-blackness. So what ended up happening is there's a Serie A team. And we don't talk a lot about Serie A on this show because every example we ever bring up is of racism. <laughs> so uh, in, uh, literally, it's the only time I think we've gone into detail about Serie A except for Champs League. But my point is, is that Torino was playing Palermo yesterday. It was a 1-1 draw. And there is a player, a defender for Torino. His name is Nicholas Nicolou. And he 
after he scored, he took a knee. And it's a very profound thing. And there was a, you know, the club internal statement that goes out in the newsletter that goes up out after the after the game, after the match. He said that he thought immediately out, immediately about his brother Floyd. Now, Nukulu is a Cameroonian player who plays in Serie A. And it, it's a beautiful thing to think that at one point UEFA used to fine the players for doing this, for any political movement. But now they're not. And just recently, like I think about Three weeks ago, they had said that they would definitely not be fining the players. There would be no financial penalty or whatnot. So the photo was captured. The problem with the photo, that whoever's working the comms and PR team at Torino, they captured a photo not just of him kneeling, but he's kneeling what looks like in front of a white player who's standing there looking at him. I don't know who the said white player is. Don't know why he couldn't get the fuck out of the frame or why the photographer couldn't edit said frame. But what happens here is that the message that like Nicolou is trying gets overshadowed by this furiously and horribly racist imagery. And he looks like he's kneeling before this white guy and you're going to tag that with Black Lives Matter. First of all, I like I'm so angry at the photo editor. Like, how is this okay? And do you know why this is okay? This is manipulation. And and, and in fairness, um, Professor Sidki Maria, who has been on the show before, she replied with, remember the banana incident? Like, this is a the monkey incident. This is by design. So they know because there was reaction to it. They could have taken it and done it better. But the problem is clearly everybody working in Torino and their comms team on the PR team is not a person or a BIPOC is not a, they, the um, acronym in Europe is B-A-M-E, Black, Asian, Middle Eastern. There's nobody there of color working there to be able to say this is problematic. And so they, it was even worse when all of this erupted last night, they doubled down again and changed the heading to, you know, instead of Black Lives Matter, they just took a quote from the player. But the problem is you don't see that the photograph is problematic. You don't see what the imagery is doing. You don't see how you're being unhelpful in posting something like this. And that's my problem is that I struggle with, I want the movement of the players and their actions and their, you know, their sincerity to be showcased, but it gets distracted. You've got people and corollary people that are completely like fucking up all the time. And that makes me really mad, but that also points down to very much. We know in sports media is complicit. Media is a hundred percent complicit. And I'm just really quickly going to read you something that a friend of mine, his name is Jesse Wente. He's an indigenous writer. He wrote on the power of media. He was not, he didn't write, sorry. He was on a radio interview with Metro Morning, an incredibly popular radio show in Toronto. And what he said was media in both the US and Canada are also creations from within colonial states. And while they may confront power occasionally, they tend to uphold the underpinnings of those states, namely capitalism and white supremacy, which makes them ill-equipped or unwilling to appropriately cover movements that directly challenge those things, which we are seeing now. Jesse Wente said this, and that applies to Europe as well. That 100% applies, the lens with which they look. This is why I'm always screaming about having, I don't even like the word diverse. I hate that word now because diverse, you often translate to white women. I want racialized people working in sports media and I want them on comms teams because this is offensive and it just it needs to be undone completely. Wow, that became a burn yeah, pile I- real fast, didn't it? <laughs> and I think like one of the, so what we're do what we're what we've landed on right is that the system itself is 
messed up in so many ways. And it's incredibly powerful. And so as soon as the system, as Amira said, like shifts back in to gear and, and gets going, we have a real fear that like the media will mess this up, the photo editors will mess this up, the college football, the college athletic system will go back into place, everyone will get silenced, all these things will just return to normal. And so one thing that we're seeing is some athletes have decided to just step outside the system to say the system is not is not the place the athletic system is not the place where I'm going to do this work. Shereen, do you want to talk to us a little bit about this? A beautiful example of somebody who's doing this is Maya Moore. And we've talked about it on the show and we've talked about it in a way that's her literally stepping away from the court where she was hugely successful and legendary in order to do other stuff in incredibly important, you know, literally trying to dismantle the injustice, the racial injustice against black prisoners. And she's helped out people that have been victims of white supremacy in the justice system. Like Maya Moore is literally creating a blueprint for how athletes can do this. And that just translates in perfectly into the interview I had with Renee Montgomery of the Atlanta Dream, the point guard who just days ago announced that she is stepping away from the court for a year in order to focus her attention solely on Black Lives Matter while building up her community in Atlanta. Hi, flamethrowers. Shireen here. I'm so honored and excited to have an incredible athlete activist on the show with me today, Renee Montgomery, number 21 of the Atlanta Dream. I think all of you know Renee, especially from her recent publication, The Players' Tribune, but I'll tell you a little bit more. Renee was born in West Virginia, and she is, as mentioned, part of the Atlanta Dream of the WNBA. She was drafted fourth overall in the draft class of 2009 to the Minnesota Lynx. In addition to being a UConn Husky alumni, she has won national championships with them and with the Lynx in 2015-2017. She also won three championships during her high school career, in addition to leading in her sophomore year the under-20 U.S. national team at the FIBA championships in, New York, in Mexico City. She's been named an All-Star 2012, as well as sixth woman of the year 2013, during her tenure with the WNBA and has broken countless records, including this is so cool. The most three-pointers in a half, she absolutely nailed seven of them and has now made a really important announcement that we will talk about in the show. In addition to the many things she's accomplished on the court, one of the most formidable is probably her life as a philanthropist and athlete activist. In addition to the broadcast work she does and the hosting, she's also an incredible community organizer and activist. Renee, thank you so much for being on Burn It All Down. Oh, thank you for having me. Okay. So can you tell me about a little bit about, for those that hadn't caught your piece in the Players' Tribune, and I repeat, you need to go and read that. Can you tell us a little bit about what you wrote and what you announced to the world? Yeah, so I announced to the world that I would be opting out of this WNBA season, this 2020 season. And the reason I was opting out was because I felt like there was a lot of work that needed to be done in the communities. And I feel like moments are only this one moment in a lifetime. And right now we have a beautiful moment happening and I want to keep pushing that moment forward. So I felt like I was better suited to be here in Atlanta. And so I just talked about my background, my family background. I talked about growing up in a predominantly white area, going to a pro predominantly white school. Uh, I just talked about the different things that make me who I am today, which brought me to this decision. 
I mean, that's incredible. What was the response from your teammates? Because I know you said you consulted with your family and your mom sounds like the wisest, wisest person, like with the, with the gems she's dropping. But what were your teammates' reaction? Because I know also you said that you had consulted a former coach, your former coach, Gino Oriema. And, you know, he talked you through it in question and it reaffirmed your decision. What about your teammates? Yeah, my teammates were, they were supportive in a sense that I didn't expect. They talked to me like we, like we were still teammates. And to me, I mean, and to me, they that's all I wanted. So they was like, look, you handle things down there in the A, we got it over here in the bubble, you know? like So <laughs> it was that kind of tone that they were just like, no, do your thing. We get it. And we're going to handle stuff over here. We got you, you know? So that made me feel even better about my decision. I mean, the things you've accomplished with the dream and, and, you know, the way that you're going ahead and you're so successful in your career, do you think that that held you back at all? Like, I'm not saying like if someone's constantly losing them, they should leave it and, and go do something else. But both things are so important, impactful and meaningful. Did that make it harder for you? Oh, oh gosh, that's awkward. Um, it didn't necessarily make it harder for me that it was interesting because when people would always ask me, uh, like, are you excited for the season? What's the talk? I had to realize that like, that wasn't what I was excited about. What I was excited about was my event that was yesterday. But at that time it was upcoming and it was my Juneteenth pop-up block party. So then I started to realize, wow, I'm not even thinking about basketball. So just that realization for me, it made it easier in that aspect because I knew where my mind and heart was. Mm-hmm. And why do you feel like this is a question that actually Jessica and her team wanted to ask you? Why do you feel like this moment is different than let's just say 2016 when you were on the links and Philando Castile was like murdered? Why do you feel things are different at this point? Because, you know, in 2016, the hashtag Black Lives Matter was offensive. You know, and you fast forward to 2020 and it's everywhere. It's different because when you look out at the protest, you can see some protests are 50-50 black and then others and then some are are there's more races than the black people at the protest that's that's unbelievable that's not normal that's new that's you see nationwide protests global protests other countries are marching for this other countries are marching so that black people can have equal rights in america that's unbelievable so if anybody wants to know what's different, that's what's different. This is no longer just a black issue. This is an everybody issue. Yeah, I think that's really, really important to understand and to remember. I mean, was there, is there, do you have a specific way that you're intending to move forward with this? Is it through your own, your own foundation? Is that how you're going to proceed? Because you do connect already with communities and grassroots community organizations in Atlanta. Are you going to continue doing that? Yeah, so that's that's how I want to try to continue this educational piece and educational talking conversation. Um, it is going to be through my foundation and even just speaking engagements, um, just because, I mean, right now I'm jobless. So speaking engagements would be welcome, but also keeping the conversation going. The point is to educate. Something close to me is financial literacy, because we all know we've seen the ESPN 30 for 30 broke. There's too many minority millionaires that go broke. The problem is, it's because they don't know how to handle finances. That's not taught in school. So if it's not taught in school, a lot of black families haven't taught it at home. So we need to figure out a way to try to educate, get an educational piece for financial literacy 
starting younger. Um, and then, you know, there's the voting coming up. There's an election in November. So getting young people ready, excited about voting, getting some Obama numbers like like we had. We all know in Obama year, it was a cool thing to vote. People were like, if you didn't vote, people were like, what are you doing, man? You better go vote. Like, you know, so we need to get it back to that type of vibe where the the standard, the norm is to vote. So I've voted since I could legally vote. Um, my parents, it was never an option, you know? Um, that's just what we did. And so that's what I mean. We need to make it start to be part of the culture, part of just, it's the norm. And also my first, my first experience with voting was I voted for President Obama, his first run. And so I was really excited because Coach Ariema, and it all comes back to that again, you know, UConn, but at Coach Ariema had had a party whenever we found out that Obama was elected. And so it was like a great experience. Like that's my first memory that I associate with voting because I felt like, wow, it was the first time I voted. I voted for Obama and Obama won. So for from then on out, like, you know, it was kind of this thing that like, for sure I'm doing it and I want to be a part. Mm-hmm. That's so important. And working with youth in your community, do you think that, I mean, in your piece, you said you'll be back. It's not like you're leaving completely. And like you said, your teammates are going to hold down the fort. But are there parts of you that can use basketball to also, like while you've taken a step away from the WNBA, you can use all your skill and talent in basketball to combine educational programs. And because, you know, one of a way to communicate with people is through ball. So is that is that something that you've thought about? Definitely. I think that's something that basketball has has helped blossom and grow is my ability to communicate. I've learned to communicate at a high level because when you're playing sports, you have to learn how to communicate the best way possible, but the quickest way possible as well. Because you don't have a lot of time. A lot of things are moving fast. So I think that me being a communicator and me being a leader in basketball, I feel like I can take those things and just carry it off the court. And that's why I've been telling people I'm trying to get some wins off the court because that's my mindset. I'm a competitive person. So even though I'm leaving the court, I'm still going to be thinking of ways. How can I make a change? I want to make a big wave. I want to be the player that makes a big wave. Like, wouldn't it be cool if everybody was competing to see how much positive change they could cause? So I don't know. I like, I want to, I want to get those vibes going. What was, who are some of the people or athlete activists? Cause now it's, there's this term for it. It wasn't necessarily there before, but as an athlete activist or a philanthropist, um, cause you, on your website, it says that you consider yourself a philanthropist, which I love as well. Um, who did you look up to? Or did you like learn this on the flyer? It was a community. Yeah, surrounded like it's, by. It's, it's like, you know, I would love to say that I was so well educated before on this matter, but I wasn't, I really wasn't. Now I'm trying to educate myself the best way possible by reaching out to people that I know already, like i.e. my parents or even just people in the community. A lot of state representatives have reached out to me now, you know, like just people that they know where I'm trying to go and they, they know how they want to help me get there. So, yeah, this has kind of been on the fly in a sense. Um, I've always had a a certain moral compass in a sense that we, I was raised in the church. So anybody knows that church people, it's like, it's the we before the me. It's that you give and, and that's just, you know, you don't give and expect to return. So those type of things that I learned that I learned that in the church. So that kind of is, is the mind frame, how, how my mind was framed. You mentioned as well in the piece, this is something I want to talk to you. You talk about how you were you know, you were surrounded with a lot of beautiful black culture growing up and your mom had lived in Detroit during the riots of 67. 
And, you know, she has lived experience in this actual thing. And it's something we may not realize that our parents get through something that'll come down to us. And you talked a little bit about that, that you're outraged and people should be outraged. And what happened to your mom shouldn't be happening to you. How do you deal with that? Like, how do you channel that, that, that energy? You know, that's, I channel that energy by focusing all my energy towards it. That That's exactly why I felt that at this very moment in time right now, I can't do both. I can't go play basketball and try to focus on this because I'm, I'm a person that I like to be locked in and focused. And for basketball, it's just, it takes so much of your time, you know? And that's why I said, if I'm out and about doing speaking engagements, those are one-off deals, but basketball, three games a week, not including practice. Then you got film sessions and I'm the type of player that I like to be fully prepared. So I do extra film on top of the film that's already required. So I just, where, where will be the time for me to, for me personally to, to do the things I want to do. And and so that's just me knowing myself and knowing that I need to just step aside this season and see what I can get going right now. And on that note as well, this is another question that Jessica had was, you talked about the idea that some players will have a bigger impact um, by participating in sport and not stepping away from it. Like, and the other ones would be able to focus, like you just said, a hundred percent of your attention on this cause, but just to sort of, you know, in addition to why you wouldn't consider like post-game pressers or scrums or stuff like that as platform. And I love though, how you said that there's many different ways to the one thing, but, when did you start thinking about this and how did you come to this realization? Yeah, so I would say about three weeks ago, first of all, when George Floyd, on May 25th, when George Floyd w- was murdered, I mean, I feel like that had to have opened up the world's eyes. You know, that caused a global domino effect. It was that bad. I never, I've never seen the whole thing. I can't watch it. But that was, that was the first moment where I'm like, wow, this is bad. Like we have to do something like that was, that was the first, we have to do something about this. And then once I talked to my mom and realized it was generational, I I started to tell them probably a week later, like, you know, I don't know about the season this year. I feel like right now is the time to do something. Like, I just don't know if basketball's it for me this year. Like right now, I feel like I need to do something else. And, you know, I had already been telling them that. So I would say since about three weeks ago, I had really started to feel like this pull towards something else. And then about four days ago, I talked to my head coach and I told her everything I was thinking and feeling and, and that I'm probably not going to play. And she was like, you know, as a coach, it was it, it sucks. But as, as a human, you know, I get it. She was like, I get it and I commend you for it. So I think just just having the, the, the affirmation, the confirmation from my coach, my my parents and my teammates, that kind of was what, just and then I talked to my my coach from UConn the day before, and I was just like, yeah, I'm just I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it, and whatever happens, happens. Yeah, that's in, that's absolutely incredible. A question about you've played overseas, Lithuania. You've um, you know, and you're talking about how it became a global domino effect. The, the murder of, of George Floyd caught attention, caught the world by storm. So, and it's not as if he was the first black person to be killed by the police. We know this is a systemic problem. But I'm wondering about those players that you played with overseas, whether it was Poland, or it was Israel, or it was Russia. Have they reached out to you too? You know, I would probably be 
lying if I said, no, I really don't know. And this is to say that I haven't been able to check a lot of my messages. <laughs> this was a media like frenzy in a sense that I could, like I was trying to keep up with it. Um, and so I haven't kept up maybe, maybe more so with my messages, trying to keep up with this moment. But I, I keep saying it time and time again, moments equal momentum. So I would be remiss to not give this moment the attention it needed. And I will be responding to everybody's texts um, but, and messages, but I honestly haven't had a chance to dive into that yet. Because your decision was very, very recent. I mean, our listeners will hear this on Tuesday, most likely, but I mean, it would be less than a week since you announced this. So it's, you know, you must be getting a lot of media requests and a lot of texts and stuff like this. And you said that the responses have been very, very positive. Why weren't you expecting that? Because you said you were surprised. Yeah, because I had seen how some of the conversations were going when this discussion had came up before in regards to NBA players and different things of that nature and just how people saw it. You know, some people, they're fans, so they want sports. So they don't want to hear about athletes that don't want to play sports. You know, like I've seen that. I've seen the tweets. I've seen the sentiments. So like, you know, I just felt that people probably just felt one way about it or the other. And so me saying that I'm opting out, well, the people that didn't like that idea, they weren't going to like me or my, or me doing it. So that's kind of, that's kind of where I had that apprehension. So a quick question. I usually like to ask this of all the basketball players we have. I'm just going to change the tone a little bit. Um, your favorite shoes, Renee? Your favorite kicks? Favorite shoes? I would have to say Vans. Okay. Like, I mean, to play in or just to wear? Like oh, to play in. To, wear, I mean. to play in, I only play in Kobe's. Okay. <laughs> okay. Oh, to play in, yeah, that's Kobe's only. Yeah. Can you tell me what you're reading right now? Ooh, I just I I just read Girl Wash Your Face. I think her name is Rachel Hollins. Love it, love it, love it. Okay, I'm gonna have to check that out. Um the other thing we I asked you initially, your favorite foods are pasta and tacos. Do you have a specific place that you love going? So if any of our listeners ever visit Atlanta or they're in Atlanta, they can check out these places. Yes, Los Sabores. It's in Mapleton, Georgia. It's like from scratch, Caribbean style food, different foods. I can't do it enough justice to tell you. <laughs> you have to taste it. Like some stuff that, let me just say, this is why they pop in my mind right away because I'm like very particular about how I eat. So some stuff I don't even like to try. And my fiance was like, you have to try it. So I tried it and it was delicious. So stuff I thought I didn't like, I like at Los Sabores. Okay. The last thing that I think I was going to ask, it was just flashing into my head. Our listeners are going to want to know how to amplify and support your work. Can you please tell us all, how can we do that? What do we do? Absolutely. Join in on the cause by following me, RMF Nonprofit, join on the conversation. A lot of times keeping the conversation going involves public support. If publications know that when they post something about me, it's going to get a lot of retweets, a lot of likes, then they'll continue to post. They'll continue to, to push the issue. So just a simple retweet, a simple like. And then I have a GoFundMe on my page where I'm using that money for different things um, and different initiatives we're doing here. Everyone knows to just do any events, it costs money. So I plan on doing events from now until next season, obviously. So that's going to be a running GoFundMe just to go fund these initiatives I'm trying to do in Atlanta and nationwide. And your 
website address is www.rmf21.org and rmf21.org. That's for namemontgomeryfoundation.org. Okay, that's awesome. Thank you so much. And where can we find you on Twitter? You can find me on Twitter. Well, it's the same. RMF Nonprofit is my Instagram and Twitter for my foundation. And then for me personally on Twitter, it's it's Renee M with an underscore. And on Instagram, it's it's Renee M. No underscore. You are such like an inspiration and we're so excited for you and what this journey is, whatever it happens, like we're cheering for you. Absolutely. I'm cheering for you anyway, because I completely stand UConn and I always have and I always will. So that's an extra reason. <laughs> but anyways, it. you are welcome on Burn It All Down anytime. If you ever want to jump back on and talk about how your journey's going, we would be, we would love to have you. And you know, one thing that I just wanted to say that people think that, that you're leaving your team, but with the way you looked at it and you alluded to the way Maya Moore, you're joining her team. And I thought that was so profound that we can all be a team in a different sense if we commit to the cause. Thank you. I appreciate that. And listen, love the podcast. Burn it all down. That's what we got to do. We got to burn down systematic racism, all aspects of it. So I'm here for it. Thank you guys for having me. Now it's time for everyone's favorite segment that we like to call the burn pile where we pile up all the things we've hated this week in sports and set them aflame. And I will just say it once again that I'm amazed at how much there is still in sports, despite the fact that there's almost no sports happening. I'm going to get us started today. This week, the U.S. Tennis Association, the USTA, announced that they will hold the U.S. Open this year. It will take place in New York at the Billie Jean King National Tennis Center on its original dates, August 31st to September 13th. There will be no spectators no media, and no line judges. They'll use electronic line calling instead. And when they originally announced it, they said there would be no singles qualifying. Men's and women's doubles draws will be reduced from 64 to 32 teams, and mixed doubles, junior, and wheelchair competition are gone completely. Tennis is an expensive sport to play, and participating in a Grand Slam can be make or break for players. As Cal Hammond wrote for Tennis.com, quote, all in all, the cancelization and shrinkage of just the qualifying and doubles will result in a loss of 256 qualifying entries and 64 doubles teams. Needless to say, many lower-ranked players struggling to earn a living on the exceedingly challenging pro tours are displeased and discouraged. The USTA has said that it will give $3.3 million to each of the men's and women's tours to distribute to players who will miss out on participating in singles qualifying or in a full 64-team doubles draw. But this was all particularly painful for wheelchair athletes. Dylan Alcott, who plays wheelchair tennis, took to Twitter to voice his anger over the decision to cut wheelchair tennis altogether. Alcott won the 2015 and 2018 wheelchair singles titles at the U.S. Open and is the reigning doubles champion. I'm just going to read from his tweets. Quote, Just got announced that the U.S. Open will go ahead without wheelchair tennis. Players weren't consulted. I thought I did enough to qualify. Two-time champion, number one in the world. But unfortunately, I missed the only thing that mattered, being able to walk. Disgusting discrimination. And for sure, there are far more important things going on in the world. But that choice should have been up to me. It is blatant discrimination for able-bodied people to decide on my behalf what I do with my life and career just because I'm disabled. Not good enough, U.S. Open. His words, they might have worked. On Friday, the USTA announced they handled the cutting of wheelchair tennis poorly. According to one player, the USTA laid out three possible options moving forward. Cancel the 2020 competition, but have $150,000 in total compensation for wheelchair athletes. 
hold the U.S. Open wheelchair matches in Orlando, Florida, where the USTA national campus is, or hold the competition in Flushing Meadows in New York during the U.S. Open, but with a 5% reduction in compensation from 2019, which was $325,000. I mean, that's good, right? Like, they should do something. But something should have been done in the beginning, from the first, from the jump. I want to burn the fact that no one apparently considered wheelchair athletes at all in their COVID planning for the U.S. Open. So burn. 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 Amira, what do you want to torch? Yeah, so I want to burn so much in college football, which is not a surprise. But particularly, I want to uh, burn their uh, continually fumbling the response to COVID. Colleges are still around the country trying to figure out what the hell to do about going back. And one of the main motivators of schools rushing to go back is because they really don't want to lose that football money. Here at Penn State, they did a survey of season ticket holders at Beaver Stadium, which fits 110,000 people. Um, and overwhelmingly, like 80% of season ticket holders said they were still planning on going on games. And so it's ridiculous. And because of that, what we're seeing is many schools returning to voluntary workouts. Ohio state required its football players to sign a waiver very similar to the one that the administration attempted to have people sign to go to a stupid campaign rally that was a disaster anyways this waiver calls on uh athletes to say they quote pledge to take responsibility for my own help health and help stop the spread of COVID. It warns the athletes that although the university is following the guidelines by the CDC, they could they understand they'll never be completely shielded from all the risk of illnesses. The reason why schools like Ohio State are having players sign these waivers is because what we're seeing around the country is nothing short of a sacrifice of black labor as bait to see what happens when we get our get people back playing voluntary workouts and if they are going to get COVID. The answer resoundingly is that they will. Just this week at the University of Texas, they announced 13 players tested positive. That's one week after uh, they came back for voluntary workouts. Also in Texas, the University of Houston had to suspend voluntary workouts after, again, one week because six athletes tested positive for coronavirus. Clemson had 28 student athletes test positive for coronavirus this week. 23 of them play football. At least 30 players at LSU are being quarantined due to a COVID outbreak. We have no idea yet how many of those tested positive or not, but at least 30 are being quarantined. Kansas State has shut down football workouts because 14 of their athletes came back with positive tests. Both Alabama and Auburn have dealt with positive tests. So <laughs> this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. I return again to that Gundy quote. Who cares? They're 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds, 20-year-olds. They're going to get COVID, but they're going to be fine. And we need money to go through the state of Oklahoma. That's what this is. This is disgusting. Did you hear the numbers I just said? Across the country, within a week or two weeks of doing quote-unquote voluntary workouts where anything but voluntary, they're contracting COVID. They're contracting COVID and nobody gives a damn because they just need their system to gear into action and to work on the backs of these students. It's not enough that you, you're hurting their brains. It's not enough that you're shortchanging their education. It's not enough that you rendered them disposable in any other way already. This is irresponsible. It's, it's irresponsible. Shut it down. Cancel the season already. Just do it. Burn. 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 Shereen, what are you burning? I'm going to offer a quick 
trigger warning for everybody listening because some of the details of this lawsuit are very distressing. So just a couple of days ago, Dan Carosillo, who is a former CHL, CHL is the Canadian Hockey League. And for those that don't know it, under its umbrella, there are three member organizations, the WHL Western Hockey League, the Ontario Hockey League, and Quebec Major Junior Hockey League. So those are called the minors, essentially, right? So Dan Carosillo is a very outspoken um, player who has talked about things like unlearning racism and homophobia and really come away and does a lot of teaching online and just has become a really good ally to different communities within hockey. He and Garrett Taylor, who also played in in the Canadian Hockey League, he played in the Western Hockey League, they filed a class action lawsuit against the CHL. And they both played like 2008 to 2010 time. And the details are really, really disturbing. They're alleging abuse in many different levels. And Rick Westhead of TSN, a colleague of mine, has done some incredible reporting on this. And some of the stuff that he reported was they suffered, quote, almost constant abuse for the entire 202 and 203 season. So they played for a while. And the time of, that this happened, the the young men were like 16, 17 years old. They're not even legally adults in some cases. And the level of abuse is quite staggering. So, for example, like rookies were hit on bare buttocks with a sawed-off goalie stick, and they'd have welts and sores, things like they couldn't sit down, and they were still attending local high school classes. Because what happens is when you play for a minor team, you you bill it with somebody, you stay in someone's house, and then you go to the local high school to finish. Um, things like during showers, the rookies were required to sit in the middle of the shower room naked while other players urinated, spat saliva, and tobacco chew on them. There's there's a 46-page statement, and it's quoted to say, at least once the head coach walked into the shower room while this was occurring, laughed, and walked out. Now, I'm quoting directly from Rick Westhead's piece on TSN, at TSN. And it goes on and on. So it's quite like I had the same visceral reaction when I read this. The point is, is that the system system of abuse, like we talk about the misogyny, we talk about the rampant sexism and the machismo and the toxic masculinity here. This is very much a part of that system. Now, you know, speaking out against this is very difficult because it can re-traumatize and, and trigger a lot of things, but also to know that men out there who have been abused, hockey players that have suffered and suffer in silence because part of the culture of toxic masculinity is to be a big boy and not say anything. Man up. It's not a big deal. I'm sorry. Getting hit with a sawed-off goalie stick is a big deal. It is abuse any way you cut it, and it's abuse of minors. I hope everybody named in the suit is held to the highest account our solidarity and support and love goes out to the survivors of abuse, many of whom have not come forward. And the extent of what the damages are being sought are not listed. They're not made public, but we'll keep on the story for you. I just wanted to say those systems of toxic masculinity in the CHL specifically and any other hockey system, I want to burn it down. Burn. 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 After all that burning, it's time to celebrate some remarkable women in sports this week with our Badass Women of the Week segment. Rest in peace to 16-year-old French climber Luce Duadi, who died this week. 
She won her first Youth World Championships title at last year's competition in Arco, Italy. Also, Vicki Wood, a pioneer in auto racing, passed away at the age of 101 earlier this month. She was the first woman to compete in NASCAR events, and she set so many speed records that she was nicknamed the fastest woman in racing. Now, our honorable mentions. The 2020 Sports Humanitarian Awards include the Stuart Scott Inspire Awards. This year, Inspire's Inspire honorees include the WNBA and the WNBPA for their groundbreaking eight-year collective bargaining agreement that charts a new course for women's professional sports, and human rights activist Mariam Sojai for her work to lift the ban on women attending soccer matches in Iran. Last week, Noor Abukaram, the high school student in Ohio who was disqualified from her cross-country race because she was wearing a hijab, testified before the Ohio Senate advocating for a bill that will allow student religious expression in extracurricular activities. The bill passed out of committee and will move to a vote by the full Senate soon. Taisha Harris of the South Carolina Gamecocks wins the Roy F. Kramer Athlete of the Year Award just ahead of beginning her WNBA career with the Dallas Wings. Congratulations to Roxana Scott who for being named Managing Editor for Sports at USA Today. Her resume is extremely impressive. Scott is former president of the Association for Women in Sports Media. She is the former assistant managing editor for USA Today Sports and managing editor of Golf Week. Scott directed coverage of six Olympic Games at the newspaper. Okay, can I get a drum roll, please? Our badass woman of the week is Anna Cockrell, the defending NCAA champion in the 400-meter hurdles, who sent a letter to USC's athletics director, Mike Bond, on behalf of USC's black student-athletes and allies, which have come together to form a new organization called the UBSAA, the United Black Student-Athletes Association. In the statement, Cockrell and the UBSAA asked Bond to state that Black Lives Matter, make a promise that no retaliation for public statements from student-athletes to include student-athletes in discussions regarding COVID-19 and return to campus, and to commit to seeking a diverse applicant pool and considering Black candidates for open positions as part of a much longer list of asks. It's always amazing to see Black athletes, especially Black female athletes, pushing their universities to do and be better. Okay, we've reached the this fun part of the show. What's good, y'all? I do want to say, I'm just going to jump in, uh, Kinsey Clark, who's the producer of the show, she has a what's good this week. She has put in an application to adopt a senior dog, and we're very excited for her. If she gets her little dog, she's going to name her Scarlet, which is such a lovely name. So that's good in Kinsey's world. Uh, Around here in my house, same old, same old, I kind of feel, but I did make this amazing strawberry blueberry pie yesterday and it turned out so well. I always have trouble with pie crust. This is like my baking enemy. Um, So I have a friend, Martha, bless you, Martha, who is much better at all this than I am. So she's given me a ton of tips. I got myself a metal pie plate, which is supposed to be better than glass. I made sure not to pull at all while I was putting the dough in the plate. And then I weighted it down with a ton of sugar. Like I filled the pie plate with sugar while I was baking the crust and it worked. I'm so, so excited about this. And the pie was amazing. Also, watermelons in season, which is always good for me. So I'm excited about that. Shireen, what's good with you? I have a lot as usual. First of all, Premier League is back. Yay. I'm so excited. But I would be happy if I wasn't a fucking Arsenal fan. 
But yes, two matches this week, and I've been commiserating with fellow Gunner supporters on Twitter. What a disaster that team is. Oh my gosh, Arteta. Oh, what are you doing? Luckily for us, we also support, many of us support the women's side who have legitimacy and merit on the pitch. Sorry, I'm like, I missed it so much. And I get back and 20 minutes into it, I'm like, this is garbage, which is so true to being an Arsenal fan. Anyways, on a happier note, the women's football in Europe. I was going to say, is this good? This is, is this good. your good, Shereen? It's, it's good. It's good. <laughs> I had so much to burn this week. That's why I was like, I can't burn Arsenal. I So it's good. It's good that they're back. I'm really mad at them, but I also love them. So the constant distress of football, which I missed. So women's football is coming back. We have the women's champ league schedule was announced. It'll be towards the end of August. I did want to say I was really happy to see friend of the show, Dr. Courtney Sito in the hockey news and a profile. She does not like media and I'm so excited for her because I love that she's in media and she's doing this incredible anti-racism Q&A because she and three other people co-wrote a policy paper for hockey federations, Oliver. So it's incredible. Please register for that. It's on June 29th. Um, I went hiking slash walking voluntarily yesterday and it was wonderful i've been making shortbread it's very very easy and i'm excited about it so i make two things i make banana chocolate chip muffins and i make shortbread and they're very good i just wanted to share um some fun news for me on another side i've signed on to do some work with tsn the sports network in canada and so I will be appearing there from time to time, just written to start, and then we'll see what happens. So I'm very excited about that. There's a lot of things that I hope to do while I'm there, and there's a lot of things I hope to share while I'm there. And I'm proud to be part of that and hoping to implement some positive change. That's great. Amira, what's good with you? Yeah, so I was off the pod for a, a few weeks because we <laughs> packed three kids and a dog into our car and took the 23-hour drive down to Texas to find grandparents, finally. <laughs> it was glorious. It was absolutely glorious. Um, we surprised my sister for her 30th birthday. I got to see my nieces. It was just so rejuvenating to be home. Um, it was lovely. The weather was lovely. They definitely don't care about COVID in Texas. That was not exciting. But we mostly stayed in the backyard and grilled and, and were basically together. And I love that. The one sad thing about Texas is that my dad wasn't there. My dad's a trucker um, and has still been running routes across this country in the midst of a pandemic. Um, but I just wanted to shout him out because it's not only Father's Day, but it is his birthday week as well. And so despite him being a Cowboys fan, uh, and he's why I'm so emotional. It's where I get my nose. And so I love you. Feliz cumple. Um, I hope your day is amazing. And the other thing that's good is is me finding the joy in, in Juneteenth. It's no secret. I'm drinking the Peloton Kool-Aid. And I was, I said the silver lining of the corporate kind of response to Juneteenth is that they assembled the Black Peloton Avengers. It was dope because they're just all so dope. Um, there was a great Black Pride ride. They had a few Juneteenth rides. And Chelsea, 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 Dr. Chelsea Jackson Roberts is the only person who can get me to sit still and do meditation or even pretend to attempt to do yoga. And and her playlist, my goodness, her Juneteenth playlist was literally like life affirming. It was glorious. And I just felt so seen and, and so rejuvenated by that. And the other thing um, that was wonderful, I don't know if anybody has checked out the New York Times's uh, Freedom is in the Claiming spread for Juneteenth. Like aesthetically, it's something you have to see because it's a collection of of pictures and words around. But I, I wanted to shout out Patricia 
Patricia Smith's poem for it. And if you haven't read it, like, please, please go read it. Then reread it again and then go back and read just the last word of each sentence because there's another poem even within that. Um, And I just want to close by reading a few words of the poem, which again, do not do it justice. Go read it for yourself. But these words spoke to me and really helped me find the joy in the day. She says at one part of the poem, she says, see how we push on as enigma, the free out loud, the audaciously unleashed, how slyly we scan the sky, all that wet voltage and scatter a furious star to realize that we are the recipients of an ancient grace. No, we didn't begin to live when on the 19th June day of that awkward ordinary spring with no joy and in a monotone still flecked with deceit seems you and these others are free that moment did not begin our breath our truce the ones we had been birthed with had already met reckoning in the fields as we muttered tangled nouns of home we reveled in black from there to now our rampant hue and nap the unbridled breath that resides in the rafters from there to here and everywhere we are is the stuff of astounding Later at the end of the piece, she says, only those fiending blindness fail to see the body of work we are, the body of work we've done. Everything is what it is because of us. It's a misunderstanding to believe that free fell upon us like a blessing, that it was granted by a signature and abruptly opened door. Listen to the thousands ways to say black out loud. Hear a whole people celebrate their free and fragile lives. Then find your own place inside that song. Make the singing matter. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you all for joining us. This show is produced by Kinsey Clark. Shelby Weldon does our social media episode transcripts and website. You can find Burn It All Down on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you want to subscribe to Burn It All Down, you can do so on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and TuneIn. For more information about the show and links and transcripts for each episode, check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. You can also email us from the site to give us feedback. We love hearing from you all. If you enjoyed this week's show, do me a favor, share it with two people in your life whom you think would be interested and burn it all down. Also, please rate the show at whichever place you listen to it. The ratings really do help us reach new listeners who need this feminist sports podcast but don't yet know it exists. If you're interested in burn it all down merchandise, pillows, blankets, hoodies, t-shirts, tank tops, that time of year, those kind of things, check out our Teespring store. One more thank you to our patrons. We couldn't do this without you. You can sign up to be a monthly sustaining donor to Burn It All Down at patreon.com slash burn it all down. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash burn it all down. That's it for Burn It All Down. Until next week, burn on, not out. <laughs>